Da-da-da. Does that work? Okay, great. Good. Thank you, Mark. I love the Superman shirt. I just... <laughs> <laughs> There's something about wearing a Superman shirt. <laughs> How many people have never been here before? If you've never been here before, just stand up for me. It's going to be easy. This is, you'll sit right back down. But I want for people to see who you are. Just say what your name is. Stefan. Where do you live, Stefan? No. Oh, good. And this is the first time you've come to Spirit Rock or just on Wednesday morning? Really? It's amazing looking, isn't it? Okay, I'm glad you're here. I hope you come again. Who else hasn't been here before? Yeah. Hi, I'm really, um, I just parked up my car in Los Angeles a few days ago and I wasn't really sure where I was going and I ended up here. <laughs> <laughs> I have this... We are, Haley. I have this feeling that you got in the car like a Ouija board, you know. <laughs> Where's it going to go? <laughs> well, I'm glad. Have you some place to stay? Yeah, actually, you guys uh, recommended a wonderful place, so it's all working out so far. All right. Well, good. Thank you for being here, Haley. I hope this resettlement project goes well. Uh, Monique, it's beautiful, isn't it? It also has a different sound. Uh, does it sound all right to you? Or could be a little louder. Okay, is that good now? A little louder. A little louder. Now it's a little. All right, I'll talk a little bit. And we'll see how it goes. Are you going to be here for a little while in California? Oh, okay. My brother-in-law lives in Fort Lauderdale, so it's beautiful there too. It's a bit steamy. It's a bit steamy. Right. You really need air conditioning there, and you don't here. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you're here. Did you manage to find some place to stay in in Marin? Um, I live in El Cerrito. Oh, okay. Yeah, we moved here just a few months ago. Uh-huh. El Cerrito is not so hard. You just come over the bridge. Okay. And the traffic is all going the other way, I think. Yeah. yeah. Josie. Jyoti. 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 Yeah. I, I had a friend named Jyoti a long time ago. Yeah, so. a really common name. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here. Okay, Welcome. Well, <laughs> also a steamy hot place in the middle of the summer. Ah, welcome. It's a good place to live. It really is. It's an amazing place to live. This is real climate. 
Who else hasn't been here before? Everybody. Well, I'm glad for your all being here today. I always have such a good feeling when I'm driving up here, like it's about to be a sane atmosphere. Maybe it's just because we stopped talking and there's a quietness. Or maybe it's that... um, Maybe it's that we have a sense, a shared sense, that there's a kind of uh, trustworthiness in coming together. Something is not right. Something is not right, Mark. Something is not right. It's a little bit whistling, and it's not pleasant. But I'll keep right on. Actually, we talked a little bit last week about that the uh, awareness that we have a moment to moment much better thank you of uh, this is pleasant and this is unpleasant is one of the key things uh, that's part of our neurology that has to do with the bigger story that we've been looking at uh, of what is really mindfulness and what's the potential of mindfulness I started saying a few weeks ago and will continue to say today after we've sat that uh, what is it about mindfulness really in the short run and the long run that brings us all to a center where their central teaching is the teaching of mindfulness. And uh, I had the most recent copy of, the shot of Lion's Roar magazine with me last week, which I am proud to be in twice in two different articles. So, But one of them... The question was, how do you teach mindfulness? Do you teach it as a uh, uh, helpful uh, technique for living in a modern world? Or do you teach it as a path to liberation? Because so, that's been one of, the, the, one of the questions that people have addressed themselves to in recent years. Uh, how many people read Mindful Magazine? recently on the newsstands. Mindful Magazine is a fine magazine and it's very much a further development of uh, the uses of mindfulness outside of the context of a spiritual path. So that uh, I heard this morning about um, mindful distributors. Mindful distribu- I forgot your first name. Peter said he saw a truck that said mindful distributors on it. And what's really funny is that they were distributing beer. So that, uh, that that's, so that's interesting. Uh, I'm down the street from me, they have a place called Mindful Physical Therapy. And I think, well, that's good. Because the, uh, the opposite of that seems like haphazard spiritual therapy or... Make it up as you go along, spiritual therapy. So uh, mindfulness is in. You know, it's mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, uh, mindful uh, parenting, mindful gardening, mindful marriage, all of which sound like they'd be great things to to perfect or to work with. And so I chose to answer the article, also the article that's in the Shambhala Sun, by saying, they were saying, 
do you teach mindfulness as an ego skill or do you teach it as part of the Eightfold Path? And my answer essentially was yes. I teach it as an ego skill and I teach it as part of the Eightfold Path because I think the great promise of mindfulness is not only that we, uh, in whatever it is that we're doing in our lives, on the pillow or in our lives or in the dry cleaners or in the supermarket or on the highway, we are practicing mindfulness because things go better that way. But my goal for myself and I think for all of us is to lead a life with a happy and contented mind. And I think that mindfulness is the key point in the Buddha's eightfold path of practice that really conditions the mind to meet experience with wisdom and uh, move through experience with wisdom and compassion and kindness, which will lead to a happy and a liberated life. I uh, was talking to somebody on the telephone the other day and I said, um, I was trying to maybe uh, make it all more simplified. And I said, anytime my, my mind has been overtaken uh, by negativity, I'm not free. In any event that my mind has been, I wanted to find the right word, maybe you can help me. Because negativity arises in the mind. You know, if you walk around, uh, <laughs> if I come into my house and my aged dog has somehow forgotten that he needs to go out to do his toileting and has forgotten to do that and there's a smell of pee-pee all over the place, a moment of negativity arises in my mind. I'm sorry that was so gross, but I was trying to think of a... An, a negativity arises in the same moment that the negativity arises, because it's foul. He said, ah, that's a moment of negativity in the mind. And the next moment about, what am I going to do with this dog? And then the answer of, what am I going to do with this dog, is he's 15 or 16 years old, and we love him, and he's going to live here and have little problems like old men do, and I'm just going to make it through. <laughs> old women as well, you know, that old women as well. And we'll just make it until the end. That's just, you know. So the first moment of negativity is there. And I'm about to tell him, listen, why did you do that? And then I have to remember that he doesn't exactly speak English and get it in retrospect. I think he looks sad, but, you know, I'm just reading that into that. Probably doesn't feel sad at all. He's probably napping or something but so I, I'm telling you this whole story because I want to make the point that liberated does not mean that your mind does not register dismay or disgust we have, we have neurons that do that that tell us that this is not good it's a foul smelling this bottle of milk is foul smelling don't, don't, don't drink it but we don't have to have a fit about it sometimes milk goes sour so we have the ability to have negativity arise, say, uh-oh, what needs to be done? What's the wise thing? And we'll talk to more, to some more today about uh, the, the, the idea of clear comprehension of purpose. Negativity has arisen. Okay, now it's, now it's okay. Because I love this old dog and I'll feel really bad when he passes. And you know, I won't feel bad that my house will smell better, but... That's going to pass. 
but my mind in the meantime is not going to live with negativity. I'm not going to not love the dog and hope for a skillful passing for him. So what I want to really say is the negativity that takes over the mind so that it's virulent, so that it's really, it's not counteracted by wisdom. That's the negativity that that keeps us caught. You say, well, sometimes don't we get caught in a... um, We can get caught in a lust as well as an anger, and then we're not free. But I think that on some level, I was thinking about this a lot, the fact that we have... uh, an unconsolable lust for something that we can't have, which is another form of struggle in the mind, it's unpleasant. On the one hand, you think, oh, lust is lovely. It's like tantalizing. You could read travel books and think I'll go here and there. Or you could plan the most exotic dinner or the most exotic trip or buy yourself something wonderful if you thought you wanted it. But it wouldn't last you still have the pain of something wouldn't be right with it. And then the mind would resent it. Look, I spent so much money on this exotic bucket list and I'm not even any happier. So that somehow, how is the mind going to be happy with, in a way that the cause of the happiness is its own heart and its own wisdom and its own compassion? How is it going to keep itself in a place where it realizes that um, I was going to tell you a sweet story and then we were going to sit but I thought I'd rather tell you are we recording this? it's already recording yes good I tell a sweet story then we sit because otherwise I would have saved it Uh, 30 years ago maybe a long time ago I was preparing to teach a class with my friend Mary. My friend Mary is a Dominican nun. She was then, she is now. Uh, And we're very good friends. We've been buddies for, since 1970. So it's 35, 45 years, isn't it? 45 years, 46 years. A long time we've been buddies. And we used to teach some classes together because we were both psychologists. And we, we were getting ready to teach a class one afternoon. We were preparing on my kitchen table all these papers and books and clippings. And we were putting them together. And we oh, look, it's late. And we picked up the books and papers and went out the door uh, to go to class together. And uh, I, as I got out the door, I said, wait. I don't think I have everything I need. And Mary said to me, sweetheart, you're never going to have everything you need. (laughs) And I took a lot of heart from that because on a certain level, I could see that it made sense to me. I could have always prepared more. I could have made more clippings. I could have done this. I could have prepared more books, poems, whatever. And then years went by, and then I thought to myself, no, that's wrong that whatever I go out the door with, I always have everything I need. That really we have everything we need. I have everything I need without any books and papers. I have a good heart and a good attitude. Then I have everything I need for my inner happiness. I might not have everything that was provident to take along to, take, to teach a uh, class, 
But then I could make amends for it afterwards. But really in life, you have everything you need. Every once in a while we read stories about people who were incarcerated for long times. Nelson Mandela, incarcerated, comes out a long time later with a good heart because he went in with a good heart. And it's really all you need to keep saying, we're in all this, every, I'm in this position, they're in this position because that's how things are now. Nobody has to be the villain, which is always the bottom line truth in any situation, incarcerated or not incarcerated. If you think about it in your own family, it came up something or other in my own family that I realized that there had been tension. Between, I have a lot of people in my immediate family between this one, this one, this one, this one that I hadn't even known about, which I became privy to. And there was always a story of it's her fault, it's his fault, it's his fault, it's her fault, it's the other fault. But then when you think about it, it's, it's, all, it's everybody's fault. And it's the fault of a few more people that we didn't even mention. And it's the fault of the time of year or the circumstance or everything else. It was just a bad time. It was nobody's fault. And it passed. And as long as it isn't enshrined in the mind... Uh, it's like in Ireland, people talk now about the troubles that we had. It was a very big trouble that they had. But it's like the troubles that we had, that our grandchildren won't have. We really need to stop. <laughs> you know, when I, when I uh, for, many of you know that for a long time, my husband and I had the opportunity of living on and off in the south of France for about a 10-year period. And uh, it's a resort kind of area in the south of France where people from all over Europe come for a holiday. And uh, so in the cafes along the, along the beaches, uh, if, depending on what table you choose to sit at, people are speaking in different languages. Now you can hear Italian and French and Spanish and German. And a lot of Swedes and Norwegians come down and... And at this, and everybody's talking and partying, and at the same time, we, uh, my husband and I, we during that time bicycled all over this, all over much of France, and in every small town, uh, there are memorials to the people who died in the first and the second war, and they all say people from our town who died, more pour la patrie who died for the country. And, I would always go into my little inner debate with that. They didn't. They died for the moneyed interests. Of the, you know, and I'd have to do my own little political rant about that. But all over the all over the place, you're reminded of the fact that these and those people were mortal enemies, and these and those people were literally mortal enemies, and they killed each other. And that those people whose names are on all those tablets died for the country are the grandchildren of all those people or the great-grandchildren are sitting on the beach in Collier at adjacent tables having a beer together. You think, weird that people did that. Just weird. And here they are. And, you know, so you say, well, it's the industrial complex. It's really greed, really. Greed that leads to hatred and delusion. I'll just triumph and it'll be better. 
We better sit, otherwise. <laughs> I came in this morning and I had actually prepared. I did bring everything that I thought I needed, but I didn't get up to it yet. So <laughs> and I thought, oh, I didn't prepare enough. <laughs> okay. The reason that I want to, I wanted to say some of that, not so much of that, but some of that, is I want to talk about what are established as the four powers, sources of power in mindfulness, according to a man named Nyanapanaka. He was the chief prelate in Sri Lanka. He's dead now, which is fairly recently. But he said there are four sources of power that come from mindfulness, really paying attention, what's happening, is it pleasant or unpleasant, and what ensues from that, what goes on with that, what could go on, what's the impulse, and what is the clear comprehension of what should I do with this. And he said, mindfulness is, uh, practice of mindfulness is like tidying the mind, just seeing what's there. This is there, that's there. All these stories of regret are there. Taking a big breath. It's very pleasant in this room. All those stories disappeared. Okay, they're gone. That's interesting. Things could be important and they're not here. Okay, so I'm here. Breath, 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 breath. I'm worried about the exam coming up. I wonder when I'll have time to study. I can't study now. Might as well settle down. Settling down, settle down. What's happening? What are the responses to it? What's the valence of feeling that comes up? I remember what so-and-so said to me yesterday. Yeah, why did he say that to me? Ah, unpleasant, unpleasant. Take a breath, relax, it's not happening now. So what's happening? What's happening in me? Um, tidying the mind, what are the habits? I keep worrying, I must have a habit of worrying. Tidying the mind, naming what's there, slowing it down, I'm trying to think what the name they gave for the fourth, I'll tell it to you in a minute, but we'll sit. And remember last week I said, uh, here are some ideas, let's sit, let's sit for about a half hour now. And I'd like to suggest that you sit by making your mind as single-pointed and relaxed as possible, which for many people means sitting and allowing your attention to come all into your physical body as you sit. No special way to hold your hands or feet. Or the most special thing you can do is sit with your back straight unless... You have back troubles, in which case you can lie down. The only reason for not lying down is you might fall asleep. Lying down is one of the postures that the Buddha suggests for practicing. It happens for me, and I imagine for you, that when I close my eyes and I don't do anything, and I feel my whole body, 
that what is the most clear sensation is the sensations around the breath going in and out. Sometimes as a shorthand we say pay attention to the breath. But I actually think it's not the breath so much that you pay attention to, literally. It's the feelings that happen in the body as the breath moves in and out. Like the rib cage opens and settles back or your belly pushes out and comes back in. Or your shoulders lift up and down. Or you feel your nostrils quiver as breath goes in and out. Your body is pretty comfortable sitting this way. And your mind is soothed and composed by the rhythm of breath in and breath out. Try to stay that way. Just relax into that place. You don't have to name every single moment. Sometimes I name it sitting quietly, feeling at ease, still feeling at ease. I might say to myself, deciding to smile. Not necessarily, but if I felt like. Your body can sit very still, often for a while, especially if it doesn't get tight or cramped. If any body sensation becomes really uncomfortable, like your shoulder is too tight or your something is really capturing your attention, move a little bit so you can fix it. And then settle down and rest. Thoughts come and go. Often they're not quite so fast as they are in the rest of our life. Thoughts about speculation about what's going to happen after, or memories of earlier, or worries, or hopes. Or Perhaps you can just think of them as momentary squiggles, neuronal squiggles to say something. and Not pay too much attention to them. You can know what they are, but not engage them. Sometimes 
we just seem to engage them and they're there when you discover that your attention has been so engaged by a thought or a plan that you've uh, lost touch with your body or your breath just notice that oh I've been gone for a minute but here I am and here's my breath waiting for me it's not a big deal just a thought here's my breath let's try to sit in a gentle and kind and interested and curious way for about a half hour
I always find that at the end of sitting quietly and allowing my own mind to compose itself, I think about people I know personally or think about in the world whose stories touch me and um, because they're in some great shape or some difficult situation. I have been watching quite a lot of um, Olympics and thinking of people who prepare for 10 or 20 years, 10 or 12 years and uh, lose an event by a tenth of a second and uh, or win an event by a hundredth of a second. And I think about how the extraordinary thing is that they were there to begin with. But for them, how much the mind is up or down. So I hope everything continues to go well there in Rio and there aren't any untoward incidents. So I'm thinking about that. What are you thinking about? I'm thinking about all the different ways that His Holiness the Dalai Lama talks about the fact that uh, human beings everywhere in all their situations and sizes and shapes and ethnicities and ages and genders all want to feel good all the way from their personal bodies to the body of the world and that we share in some fundamental way the desire for ease in body and mind. 
sometimes when I think about the idea that we are all one, we are also all different on so many, many ways. But fundamentally, we are wired with nervous systems that really hope for peace and ease. May all beings be peaceful and happy. Peaceful and content and come to the end of their suffering. I keep thinking uh, it's it's like an old metaphor, but it it works all the time. I keep thinking about the uh, the, um, the uh, television sets that they have in bars, uh, where they have a big television set, and all the people in the bar could be watching uh, the Giants game, and then they can flick a little button over here. And they can see the game somewhere else, the Army-Navy game or the something or other, some other little game. It's not the main game here, but it's another important game. And what happens in this game affects the outcome of the Giants game, whether they go on to play so-and-so or so-and-so. Or... And I've been, I've been thinking for years that my mind has that same sort of organization where it thinks about the whole world and it wishes so much I keep hearing dire things about in 70 years California will not be habitable. So uh, I learned that from a professor of um, earth science and uh, ecology at UC Davis. So I think to myself, wow. I could think to myself, I'm not going to be here in 70 years, but my grandchildren might be here in 70 years. And if they have children, they'll be here in 70 years. And what does that mean? It'll be too hot? It will be hot. They'll have so many earthquakes and they'll have more um, tsunamis and uh, a lot of more forest fires and 
uh, I can think about that and be genuinely taken with it. And I can get a call from uh, one of my immediate family that says, uh, by the way, we're on our, on our way to the emergency room with so-and-so because they're having an asthma attack. And then all of a sudden, forget about California, the whole California, because now I'm worried about the asthma attack. And one person's asthma attack seems the most important thing. It goes up to number one. And the way that the mind can do that, and it's legitimate, you're supposed to be most wired to take care of whoever is your next there that you are fundamentally wired to take care of. I always show this kind of, I realized I was doing this. I brought, a, I brought an article that I wanted to pass around. I will right away. And just it'll go back and forth because I was so moved by it. It has nothing to do directly with anything we're talking about, but about, we tend to see in the newspapers about attack from this side and attack from this side and attack from this, in, in these wars, who's attacking who and in this politics, who's attacking who. And it sounds like human beings are attacking Thai people. That's one of the things that human beings do. They also are caring types of people, people who are moved to the distress of other people, to respond to the distress of other people. I don't think it would sell a lot of newspapers if tomorrow morning the headlines in any newspaper said that in, um, in China there's a tremendous effort being made to renew the panda population. And uh, pandas are very precarious. There's a bunch of pandas. I'll, I'll, send it, I'll send it around. A bunch of pandas being successfully raised. Here's a panda. And here, uh, here is a person in a panda outfit. You see the person in the panda outfit? person in the panda outfit is part of the project. They, have, they find baby pandas or they manage to achieve a successful mating in captivity and pandas are born. Pandas are born, if you leave through this, tiny, tiny. They're, they're bears. And their mother takes them, picks them up and they don't look at all like a panda, picks up this tiny thing and sticks it in a pouch and it grows up there. It grows very fast and it becomes a panda. And they raise them in captivity, but then they try all the while to be teaching them how to have skills in the wild. So they uh, teach them to be frightened of tiger smell. You know, how would you, how would you need to be in the wild? And then eventually they, they let them out in the wild in a territory where they can check them because they have... Um, uh, collars on them that tick where they are and uh, these workers in the panda costumes go out and track them down and find them and take them back in and check their health and then put them out again and they figure that the baby panda will not be so frightened of them in the wild if they come in the panda suit all sprayed with panda smell all over them. I think that first of all, baby Grown-up pandas are not that big, and they don't stand up on their feet. And you know, I think that a baby panda could figure out, oh, it's not my mother. But apparently, they don't figure that out. And I, I just was so touched. 
here, why don't I pass it here with you? Here you go. And uh, just leaf it through and pass it. It'll go back and forth in an hour. They just look at the pictures. Okay. Oh, you've seen that one. I thought to myself, how would it be if the headlines on the New York Daily News would be three pandas successfully re-released into the wild in China yesterday, thereby buffering up the panda population? How about if we said, these are the way that people make a difference in a good heart way? I was reading, oh, in that same a National Geographic, the, the, there's a... Um, uh, an important article about gene replacement that can be done in utero. They take out a certain gene and put in another gene. It's amazing what people can do that have figured out what to do. And still we have not figured out how to keep the world from killing each other. It seems like the most simple thing. I mean, we really... So this is what I wanted to do today. I read that kind of stuff. Somebody told me about they have a friend who every night when she gets into bed, she takes her iPad and reads YouTubes of elephants. You know, there's a lot of YouTubes on animal behavior. And the ones that are really cute, apparently, are the elephants, because you see them. The elephants are very... Uh, they take very good care of their children. And baby elephants look so cute. I mean, baby everything looks cute. Baby turkeys look cute. I don't know why baby elephants look more cute than other ele- things because, I mean, but they're so strange when they're big, you know. And when they're little, they look like that, but not big. And there's one particular video in which the baby has strayed from the herd and is suddenly lost somewhere. And the, somehow this this videographer has caught the the uh, baby elephant looking around, looking around, stumbling around in the wood, and then looking out into some clearing and seeing its mother <clears throat> on the other side and knowing that's its mother and come bounding out of the wood and start running across this open savanna uh, towards its mother. And its mother simultaneously sees it and comes running across the plane to, to meet it, you know. And it looks like every meeting scene of soldiers coming off of an airplane coming home or returning soldiers getting off of a, a Navy vessel and people running to them. And they run, and here comes this baby, runs right under the elephant and stands in there underneath them. And you really start to, I mean, it's really touching to see that that's what happens in a world that we run to our mommies when we can and take care of them if we're the mom. Just as a mother would give her life to support her one and only child, just so should we towards all beings boundlessly open our hearts. That's the absolute opposite of negativity. Anybody here who's had a child and has been worried about it and uh, it she or she comes home way later than you thought they were coming home. You tell me if you had had this experience. You are up, it's two in the morning, they're not home. You knew they're their party, but they thought, okay, 12 o'clock, 12.30, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. And it's raining outside, so what could have happened to them? Maybe, Maybe now everybody's got a cell phone, so they don't worry. When I was back in the day, you don't have a cell phone, you worry. 
And you think to yourself, when they come home, I'm going to tell them, you have to move out of here. You have to have an apartment. I can't take it. You can't live here. This is too hard on my nervous system. You have some nerve. Why didn't you call home? You knew I was... And then you hear the car turning up the driveway. And you turn off the light so that they won't know you stayed up all night. And you never say anything about it. Anybody recognizes this particular... All over the place, because you, you, you use the anger as a way of defending yourself from the fact that, from even thinking about how, how uh, appalling, how terrible it would be if they were really having something. Sometimes terrible things happen to children. Just as a mother would give her life is, I think, um, a metaphor for just as a parent, just as a grandparent, just as an involved person. I think because we are wired to take care. I used to say things like, uh, when, when the heart is relaxed, when the mind is relaxed, the heart is open. Uh, maybe it's, um, it's too... Um, maybe it's too pat. Maybe there are people who really... Uh, their mind can be relaxed, but really they, for some reason or other, are sociopathic or they lack empathy uh, and their heart is not open and they can do terrible things and their mind can stay relaxed and unremorseful. But if that's true, I think it's 1% of the world, maybe. Not most people. Most people, I think, care. And certainly not people who are mature who have their nervous system under control. Who told me a story yesterday? A friend of mine told me a story. My friend is a psychologist. Her husband is a psychologist. And they were invited by another friend of theirs who works in a prison in some adjoining county. Uh, Is this worth a long story? Anyway to come and have the, the people in that prison have done really bad things it's not a county jail but to come and, and meet the people in this case men who have been uh, interned in that prison for a long time mostly people who did murders and he introduced them as having been married for more than 50 years and the both of them working and, and they answered questions for an hour and a half and that was, you know, cordial. The men were asking questions about what... One of the questions was, what's a trigger? What's a, what, what do you mean, what's a trigger? said, so, well, the social worker said we should know what our trigger is. I thought a trigger is a thing on a gun. But a trigger is apparently what triggers you to go off. You know, so I had heard it in that sense. But the people liked them, apparently. They, she said, we had such a good rapport said, uh, in the end, um, somebody came up, it's a terribly sad story, and said, um, I was married, um, and I see that you guys have been married for more than 50 years. He said, uh, I wish it would have worked out that way for me. I killed my wife. That, you know, she, and my friend said, you know, I didn't know what to say. He said, I should have divorced her. 
So I thought to myself, is this funny or not funny? No, but it's terribly sad. You know, he should have, but maybe. I mean, clearly, he should have. That's why we have divorce laws. But the difference between an impulse of, I can't live with this person and killing them. I wouldn't tell you that story unless I hadn't heard it last night, because, you know, it's it's an exact story of in between an impulsive, I feel like doing that, and a thoughtful, this is really not a workable relationship. I really need to do something else. That's why we have divorce laws. You can do something else. When the, uh, the, I've been carrying around this particular quote from Rumi for some years. It says, when the hands, when piety ties the hands of desire, the hands of the heart are free to move. So I like that a lot. I copied it down a month ago and I've been carrying it around and thinking about it. And I think that piety doesn't, usually we think about piety as meaning um, religiosity, um, never missing Sunday Mass, never eating food that is not halal or kosher, or never working on the Sabbath day, whether it's Thursday or Friday or Friday or Saturday or Sunday. But I, I actually think that I would like to interpret piety as not meaning scrupulosity about religious observance. I'd like to talk about piety as scrupulosity, well, even scrupulousness, scrupulosity is something else. Scrupulousness about what are my motives and not being motivated by other than goodwill. That would be piety. If um, I think that it's actually what all the major religions that have endured for all these years, been talking about, love one another as I have loved you, Love your neighbor as yourself. I read a, um, I read a, uh, a kind of a discourse on why love your neighbor as yourself, which is a line uh, shows up twice in the, uh, in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, why it means because uh, you could say, well, my neighbor's next door to me. I like her very much, or him. They have my same religion, my same ideas, my same background. I love them very much. So those other guys over there that live in this way and that behave in this way, it's them that I don't have room for. And this particular essay was making the point that love your neighbor as your... Love your, love your enemy as your neighbor... Your neighbor is God in this uh, interpretation. Your neighbor is God. And how you love God comes out in how you love everybody else. That everybody is your neighbor because God is your closest neighbor. And I like that very much as... um, so hard these days to not uh, find our vulnerable points let me tell you these four points in uh, in Nyanapanika that I have been waiting to talk to about for four days. Four weeks now. 
Today's the third or the four. I promise you by the end of next week. But no, I'll be here today and next week. Next week, by the way, don't forget, is your bring a friend as a gift from Spirit Rock. We are inviting you to bring a friend for free next week. You can even bring two friends because somebody else will forget to bring a friend. And so it's a two-four. It's a group on, you know. Uh, Bring a friend because we have this nice big space. And we want to really be generous about it. So if I had my way, we would do that all the time. And some, in some time that we have to come up to in the future, we'll do it like that. We'll invite people to just come in. Financially, Spirit Rock can't do that yet, but you can bring a friend for free next week. What? <laughs> huh? Oh, you're looking at the pandas. They're great, aren't they? You look at that and you think the world's all right. You know, I, I, I was thinking about um, the way in which I hadn't, I hadn't even meant to say so much about uh, the, the, the place between the feeling of doing something and doing it without restraint is, I think, the most amazing piece of equipment that human beings have. We can wait. In the line in Siddhartha, where he's explaining um, at the end and that he's become enlightened, uh, the, and they said, uh, what can you do now that you're enlightened? This the Siddhartha of Hermann Hesse. And he says, I can fast and I can wait. To wait is a tremendous... Ability, because you feel like doing something. I was thinking how people can get so easily aroused to um, doing something. There's a scene in uh, The Lord of the Rings where someone rushes in and tells the king the neighboring uh, army has come over the hill and they're about to attack. And he says, to war, to war, to the armory. And they all rush off, and and you know here it is, and I'm getting all upset, and it's not even real, it's not even a newsreel. This is the Lord of the Rings. This is Tolkien. This is you know it's a classic. So all these people get up and they rush off to the armory, and there's a protracted scene, seriously, where people are running through the armory, picking up a sword or a lance or a hatchet or some medieval instrument of. Uh, armory and they're running through and it's a long sequence they don't just glance at it picking up and running out picking up and running out and I I kept thinking I'm sitting there thinking somebody could pick up like a long sword or something and he could say "Hmm, this looks like I could turn this into a very good plowshare you know that somebody could stop and say this hatchet, I could use it to clear the uh, brush out at the end of my little plot of land. And they will change their swords into plowshares. Somebody could say, listen, I don't have to do this. But it doesn't happen. We went to Iraq because Colin Powell was pushed into saying, holding up that piece of... Um, 
that envelope full of white powder. Who knows what it was, but it was not some terrible powder. But everybody got very frightened about it, which he felt very badly about afterwards and wrote about in his autobiography. And here we went to Iraq and there were no weapons of mass destruction. The bomb was dropped on Hiroshima 50... 71 years ago, last sat Saturday. The 6th, Friday here, Saturday there. When there were peace negotiations happening in Europe at that time, active peace negotiations happening. And the second one was dropped three days later in Nagasaki, when the peace, when they didn't even know what had happened in Hiroshima, because it was completely destroyed, and people get carried away with armories. What would have happened at those times in history if people would have said, "Wait a minute, let's wait a little more, let's wait a little more"? People say, "I'm running out of patience," like it's a. Um, uh, a countable uh, quantity like you could have a certain amount and then whoops I just ran out of patience too bad one day too soon not like you know we talk about loving kindness being infinite you don't run out of it you make more the mind is infinite you wait I mean, obviously, if someone is drowning and you see them, you don't wait to see if they can suddenly learn to swim. I mean, there are certain places where you rush in where it's appropriate. But when we are controlled by stories that we don't know are operative in the mind, that's the principal reason, Nyanapanaka. I bought my two books today, so we have a minute of explaining why these are my two favorite books in my whole bookstore, my whole bookshelf at home. They are both by Nyanapanaka Tara. T-H-E-R-A is not his name. Uh, his name is Nyanapanaka. Uh, and we sell them in the bookstore, I'm sure. Uh, N-Y-A-N-A-P-O-N-I-K-A. Nyanapanaka was born in Germany in the early 1900s. He's a, he was a Jew, born in Germany in the 1900s, went to university, got very interested in, in Buddhism, wanted to go to Sri Lanka and study Buddhism and become a uh, monk. And uh, his father died, and he felt he had to stay there and take care of his mother. He was an only son, and he had uh, an older mother. And... Uh, then the war, it was uh, the Second World War. Second World War was uh, in its gearing up stages and it seemed that Jews should get out of Germany. So he was going to Sri Lanka. He wanted to go to Sri Lanka, but he didn't want to leave his mother. So he took his mother with him to Sri Lanka where she ultimately became a student of his and presumably became as wise as he so it's a really nice story about uh, doing something for your mother. Uh, it's, a different, it's a different story from just as a mother would give her life to protect her only, one only child, just as, just as a son would give his 
plans over to protect his one and only mother. So he took her to Sri Lanka where he became a, a monk, ultimately became a Tara, which, which means monk. It's like a priest being father so-and-so. He is uh, Father Nyanapanaka. He is Tara Nyanapanaka. Uh, and, uh, and by the time he died, he was the, uh, uh, what do you call it? Not CEO. He was the head of president of the uh, Buddhist Publication Society in Kandy in Sri Lanka. And he's a beautiful writer. I'll read you a little bit of um, his writing on the power of mindfulness just in his words, just to hear how he writes. He writes about the four reasons that mindfulness keeps you not only sane but happy is um, um, well I'll read it to you then you'll know he has the four functions of mindfulness that serve as uh, mental development they are the functions of tidying up naming what's in the mind exercised by bare attention and they says that mindfulness is non-violent and non-coercive because it, my moment of mindfulness is a moment uh, that says huh Look what's happening, including look what's happening and it's unpleasant, which is not look what's happening, it's unpleasant, pow. It's unpleasant. Or give it to me. I bought a book yesterday called Bernice. Bernice goes up or Bernice something. Uh, if you have a four-year-old grandchild, there's a beautiful children's book Bernice is a cat, and she's annoyed because she uh, there's nothing is going right at this birthday party. Starting from everybody gets you see all these little other animals, and she's there in her little dress and being served. But she is the only person that does not get a rosette on her cake. She gets plain white frosting from the middle of the birthday cake that didn't have a rosette on it. So already annoyed. And she doesn't get a turn at the uh, um, piñata because somebody else, a bigger animal, got to break it first. And then something else doesn't happen. And then something else happens. She's also thoroughly pissed by this time. And you see all these pictures of annoyed cat. And then someone comes with a big uh, handful of balloons on strings. And she and says, who wants a balloon? And she leaps up and grabs the whole thing of balloons and she says, they're mine. And she swoops right up into the air. Like, you remember the movie Up? She's going up, 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 up. And she's behind, she's above everything. And she goes past this disaffected-looking bluebird and this disaffected-looking something else. And then she gets up into a really unhappy-looking cloud with a bad face, all black cloud that's getting ready to ra rain with a rain face. And she realized, I'm going to get rained on with this. And she said, this is a... And she looks down, and she said, my problems are really small compared... You know, my problems with the cake, etc., are very small compared to the problem I've made myself now. She doesn't say it in that fancy of a language, but more or less. She says, I'd better give this cloud a balloon and lighten my load, or, you know, make myself heavier. 
So she gives the cloud a balloon. She said, then the cloud will feel happier. And the cloud smiles. Then she goes down and she gives the robin that was disaffected, robin, a balloon. And the robin smiles. And then the squirrel smiles. She gives away enough of her balloons that she lands back on earth and says, my, I'm so happy to be here and everybody's glad she's back at the party. So it's not a very deep plot. He can figure out, he can figure out that it's better to share than to not share and to be impulsive and to make your own reality with, uh, you know, nobody, everybody else got a rosette, not me. So why did I say that? That was in the middle of this. It's not it, it, mindfulness is not coercive; it's nonviolent. So that means, if Bernice at that moment could have been aware, I am really, really annoyed. I'm not getting anything good at this party, but that's the way it is. Instead of saying, "Look at those balloons, mine." That is coercive. She's changing the system that isn't ready to be changed. Mindfulness is nonviolent. Mindfulness has the capacity of stopping and slowing down. And mindfulness has directness of vision bestowed by bare attention. That really means, I think, I think I have to fix this head thing by next week. I think what it really means is directness of vision is what I alluded to before about suddenly... Uh, you see, nobody is the cause of all of this trouble. Everybody is the cause. And really the cause of it is greed, hatred, and delusion. And it doesn't belong to anybody. It's everybody's. And it's us. We are all victims. We're all villains. We're in the same play, playing off each other. And it's not helpful to pick out a designated victim. We know that in family systems it's not helpful to pick out somebody who's the odd man out, odd woman out. It's much more helpful to say, what should we do in this family so that we all live more happily together? Okay, so we'll pick it up. We're not going to finish this. So this is Nyanapanaka talking about tidying up the mental households. If anybody whose mind is not harmonized and controlled through methodical meditative training should take a close look at his or her, everyday thoughts and activities, he or she will meet with a rather disconcerting sight. Okay, I'm going to leave off the she. This is 20 years ago. Apart from the few main channels of his purposeful thoughts and activities, he will be everywhere faced with a tangled mass of perceptions, thoughts, feelings, and casual body movements showing a disorderly and confusion which he certainly would not tolerate in his own living room. I love that line. I think it has remnants of Nyanapanika's mother in that. This living room is too messy. I'm just visualizing a Victorian living room with antimacassas and, and Tiffany lamps and all kinds of doodads around. Says, this is too messy. I can't find anything. Yet this is a state of affairs that we take for granted within a considerable portion of our waking life and our normal mental activity. Let us now look at the details of that rather untidy picture. This is what's going on in your mind. 
First, we meet a vast number of casual sense impressions, such as sights and sounds, passing constantly through our mind. Most of them remain vague and fragmented, some of even based on faulty perceptions and misjudgments. Carrying these inherent weaknesses, they often form the untested basis for judgments and decisions on a higher level of consciousness. Misjudgments. I, I had an experience one time when I was, a um, long time ago, I was doing a long period of practice at the Insight, for, Insight Meditation Society in Barrie in Massachusetts. So the way that the building is, is that you go into the meditation hall, just like we have here in the upper hall. When you come out of the hall, not far from the site of vision of the door of you walk out, is a bulletin board. And on that bulletin board, there are often notes for various people on retreat, maybe a note uh, you, you forgot to give in your registration form, maybe a note that says, uh, someone found some of your laundry, please come to the manager's office and we'll give it back. Maybe a note that says, uh, your teacher wants to cancel your appointment for this afternoon or make it another time. Or maybe a note from home. People are not supposed to call you, except if it's an emergency when you're on retreat. But emergency, they can call you. So here comes Sylvia Borstein on retreat. Happy as anything to be there sitting quietly, and because she's Sylvia Borstein and she has all kinds of catastrophic worries and a little bit of guilt about leaving her husband with four adolescent children. I mean, they're adolescent children. They're grown-ups. They take good care of themselves. He's a grown man. I, you know, I didn't leave them in the middle of a desert with a whole refrigerator and things, everything <laughs> taken care of. My husband's a physician. There's nothing worrisome about going on a retreat. And they encouraged me to go but I'm feeling guilty about going. Something might happen, and I'm not there. I bet something happens just for that. I did something for myself. Who knows whether it's just for that or what the mechanism is. But I'd always walk out of the hall there, and I'd think, uh-oh, I hope I don't have a note. So days go by, no note, no note, beginning to relax. Okay, no note. So I come out one day, note says Sylvia Borstein, ah, it's going to be some terrible news. I put out my hand. I pick up the note. It doesn't say Sylvia Borstein. It says something else. Maybe it said Sandra Weinstein or something that had some similarity. It didn't say Jim Smith. It said something long enough. So it, have, so it wasn't completely... But nor did I look at it very closely. I said, ah, that's it. And I had a whole scenario. And I opened it. And a whole blast of cortisol. Is it cortisol that goes in you, Nancy? Adrenaline, Adrenaline cortisol. It goes right through your body. And it's not me. So that was one of those occasions. I'm sure I've told you the story too many times of hearing a bell ring that didn't ring. This is seeing something that wasn't there. So that, so, that, so that saying to somebody, I saw it with my own eyes, doesn't mean anything. It means that you saw it with your own eyes. And behind your own eyes are a whole bunch of expectations and thoughts that are probably coloring what it is that you see. 
I think it's probably more important to add in there that you're walking down the street in San Rafael or any place where you live and a block away but clear enough for you to distinguish who it is someone comes around the corner who is someone that you somehow know a little bit that once said something not nice to you or you heard said something not nice to you or you thought you heard something that was not nice to you and they come around the corner and you're walking along minding your business you feel pretty good here comes that person you say oh there's Louise who I don't like so much because she did this and this and this and this and this Louise does not come around the corner alone Louise comes trailing I think it's Wordsworth who says trailing clouds of glory or somebody who says trailing it's a poet and it's in the Tiger Tiger Burning Brown huh? it's Wordsworth training trailing clouds of glory something like that but I think about it people trail clouds of stories that are filed in your filing cabinet about them maybe you haven't seen them in 10 years maybe they've had major personality changes in the 10 years maybe they're a whole different person maybe they're the person that you've been really waiting to meet at this point but by the time you meet them you're already about them so that's what Nyanapanaka is saying be fun to Think about it for next week. What are the stories that you are carrying? Like if somebody, if ever, if every one of us wore sandwich signs, you know, <laughs> How, what it would say on your sandwich sign as you came around the corner. <laughs> let me just let me just see if I want to tell you any more about this. Uh, so you don't know what's in your mind that's actually claiming our attention and beyond these casual sense impressions there are more significant perceptions, thoughts, feelings volitions that have a closer connection with our purposeful life here we find that they also that for the most part they're in a state of confusion hundreds of cross currents flash through the mind everywhere there are bits and ends of unfinished thoughts stifled emotions and passing moods that's a very interesting little uh, phrase that stifled emotions because things that we really not having pleasure from this thing neither am I Neither I, I was going to say, neither am I having a fit about it. it would, first of all, it's not upsetting me that much. And second of all, how unseemly would that be? I mean, <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> Certain things you can't do. <laughs> if, we are, we, if we observe our own minds, we shall notice how easily diverted our thoughts are how often they behave like undisciplined disputants, constantly interrupting each other and refusing to listen to each other's arguments. Again and again, many lines of thought remain rudimentary or are left untranslated into will and action because courage is lacking to accept their practical, moral, or intellectual consequences. If we continue to examine more closely our average perceptions, thoughts, or judgments, we shall have to admit that many of them are unreliable. They're just products of habit. 
led by prejudices of intellect or emotion, by our pet preferences or aversions, by faulty or superficial observations, by laziness or by selfishness. I was thinking about, we'll maybe do some more of him last next week because I, I really enjoy it. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, the other part of that, being able to name what's, uh, being able to be aware of what's going on, tidying it up. Here's an example, of, and talk about naming. About tidying, if I clean up, in the time I was first studying this and thinking about it, and making a list of my principal uh, confusing energies, my principal hindrances. We've gone, done those principal uh, hindrances before. Some people, when they're um, distressed, seem to think about how can I uh, soothe myself with some pleasant thing. I'll go to a movie, I'll turn on the television, I'll have a beer, I'll call a friend. Some people, they get mad when they're upset. I'll just tell a few people I'm mad, or I'll just, I'm just in a bad mood. doesn't matter. Uh, some people, they get exhausted. I give up. I'm not doing this. I'm just going to take a nap. Some people, they fret. Um, it's not a word that people use very much anymore, although I see it's in the suttas a lot. Uh, and it says, so-and-so came to meditate having put down fretting for the world. I thought that was a great uh, line. I thought maybe we'll talk about it. Ooh. There's something about them that lifts up the spirit. That's so weird. Uh, and the last one is uh, a lack of self-confidence. When I began to think about those for me, and I saw how much they were operative in my life, I, I saw how the, the, I was clear that the main of those disruptions to the clarity of mind was fretting. I, I wasn't joking before when I thought about um, you get frightened. Oh, you make up a story. Someone is going to call me and say so and so has been injured in a, a water polo meet and uh, got a concussion. Well, something you make up a story that could be true. And then it's not true, but you have the story made up, so then you see, says Sandra Weinstein, oh, Sylvia Borstein, oh, not me. In the meantime, the whole uh, cortisol or adrenaline is in your body, and you're not thinking clearly, and it takes you a while to settle back down. They're called hindrances because they hinder clear seeing. Your whole mind gets filled with uh, a confusion because it just lights up all your circuitry. I think a lot about globes. Anybody has globes as um, uh, paperweights? Currently, anybody has a globe as a paperweight? Currently, you have one. I, I, I like them very much. I don't currently have one, but uh, they went out of vogue. I mean, I think they were, uh, they had their time. But it's clear, when you do this, you don't know what's in the middle, and then when it settles down, you see oh, two little old people sitting on a bench. That's nice. Or whatever is in there. But I also began to feel that as long as I saw that that was the tendency of my mind to make it a catastrophe out of nothing, to, out of ambiguity, 
uh, since I could see that habit of my mind, since it's pretty much implanted in there, it's in there now, I don't believe it anymore, is it began to be able to be all right in my mind as long as I not recognized it. So that was really the point of him saying, if you see how your furniture is arranged, you won't trip over it. Like if it's a tidied living room, as long as you know where all the furniture is, you can walk in it in the middle of the night and not trip over it and hurt yourself. If I'm somewhere and I call somebody and they should answer me back and they don't answer me back, but I know that they had a doctor's appointment and the doctor's appointment should have been over two hours ago, though they'd definitely be out. And probably they're not answering the phone because they got such dire news that they're afraid to tell me because I know I'll be so upset. Make up a whole story. And then they call you and they say, hey, Ma, say, I'm so worried what happened. Say, oh, I'm having lunch with a friend. I ran into a friend. I'm fine. The doctor said, I'm fine. Everything's good. And I, in the two hours, have... Anybody recognize this? <laughs> Who recognizes this as a possibility with them? So the thing is, my new thing is... So I'm not the only person with that. I've, it's not embarrassing. It's, it's a bear. I would love it not to have it. What's true is I like it better than any of the other hindrance energies. Someone said we can do a hindrance and give you another, another person's hindrance. I don't know, I don't want a version that's so unpleasant to be mad. And I don't know what I would do with greed. But I'm pretty used to this. Because I can say, listen, after the initial, ah, think, wait a minute, you don't know. And that's pretty good. So they are workable. You don't have to throw out the furniture. You just have to move it around so you don't trip over it. And you have to name it. This is my, it's not me. I, I really am careful to say I'm not a nervous person. I am a person in whom alarm arises easily. That's all. I could do it if I were a person who lost my temper easily. I would say I am a person in whom anger arises quite easily when I feel things aren't going my way. I am a person who easily lets go of my diet when I arrive at somebody's house and I'm about to say, you know, I'm just eating vegetables and vinegar this week, who has just prepared a whole meal, who says, oh, I'm just a person in whom uh, appetite plays a very strong part in I'm very soothed by sensual pleasures. I like reading. I like reading a Bon Appetit. I like looking at the pictures. They make me feel as if I ate that stuff. Who who likes reading those kind of magazines? Yeah, you don't have to make them all, but you read them all. Sure, even cut them out, put them on the refrigerator. They're pleasing, but you work with them, tidying the mind so you don't trip over it. And knowing what it is, he has a line where he says, if you can name something in a way that pinpoints it for you, it liberates you. You don't have to worry about, "Uh uh-oh, what if my friends knew this? You know, there was a period of time about 30 years ago when I had done very, very intensive meditation practice for a while and really was able, just because my brain, I guess, works that way, to make some very intensive, concentrated states, which are wonderful, and I'm glad I had them. And I passed through them, and I had some insights from them. I don't think that they're the source of wisdom, but they really are quite profound. 
And they are often the source of very altered body experiences. So I went through a couple of years of, um, probably told you, of having spontaneous movements and spontaneous grimacing. I think something happens to the nervous system, and it's not good or not bad. It's just what happens, and then the nervous system settles down again, and I don't have that at all anymore. And sometimes when I go on retreat and I'm sitting for a while and I'm very seriously cultivating concentration, it starts again and I think to myself, okay, a little too much intensity, Sylvia, back off. You have the same insights without getting so focused if if you have the kind of metabolism or the kind of nervous system. Someday they'll know more about the um, connection between the two. But one of the things that happened during that period of time is that I would often have a panicky feeling arise in my body out of nowhere. And so I got to be a little bit leery of going to places where I couldn't, like, step outside for a moment. So meantime, I was going to work and continue with my family, and for all intents and purposes, everybody thought I was fine. I was fine. I just had these funny involuntary movements and uh, all of a sudden bouts of uh, maybe maybe they were claustrophobia maybe they were panic but I'd have to get out of the room I was in and so I, I stopped saying I started to say to my friends no let's not meet for lunch why don't you come to my house all different kinds of ways of avoiding it and then I thought one of my friends called and said, you want to meet me for lunch in such and such a place? I said, sure. And I went to the place and we sat down. And I said, look, before we start to eat, I have to tell you, I want to tell you that I have a weirdness currently. It's probably some passing thing. It probably it has to do with my meditation practice. But sometimes in the middle of being in an inside space like this, I have a feeling that I have to get out right then. So if while we're eating, I suddenly leap up and rush out, don't worry about it. There's nothing you did. Just sit here, keep eating, and I'll be back. And it never happened, ever again. Because if you name it, it doesn't happen. Do you remember the fairy tale Rumpelstiltskin is my name? Remember Rumpelstiltskin? When she knew to say Rumpelstiltskin is my name, then she was in charge. You name it, you name the demon. I think that's why, although nobody ever told me this, I think that's why people in 12-step often say, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a whatever else you say, way after they have been sober for a long time. And what they're doing is naming what they see as an aspect of what they know about that their constitution will not be able to tolerate alcohol responsibly, and so they're not using it anymore. And people say, well, you could say, I used to be an alcoholic. And I, I think that what people have explained to me is it's for several reasons. You just don't eat, you don't drink, and you say, I'm an alcoholic, just like you don't eat certain things, you say, I'm a diabetic. It's an illness, not being able to tolerate alcohol. It's not a moral flaw. It's an illness. It changes things and it takes them out of the realm of something that you have to keep a secret. I think actually in in terms of living in uh, 
with lots of friends. Um, it seems to me that with my friends, the ones that I begin to feel are really my friends, are the ones with whom I, from whom I don't have secrets. Or they don't have secrets. So we have Rumpelstiltskins ourselves into a comfortable place. Everybody is Rumpelstiltskin. That would be a good name to put on today's, name of today's talk. But I think it would be too abstruse. Nobody would know what it was about. You don't think, well? I think it would be I think it's witty as anything, I won't do it. The people who are listening to this tape will call it something something like Nyanapanaka's formulation of the sources of strength in mindfulness. But all of us will know it's actually Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> so we have one more time together next week. Not forever, but uh, next week where I definitely will managed to do um, no I did something I got halfway through those four points we did the naming, the tidying the not coercing we did not finish the uh, we did not finish the keeping slowing and slowing down and the keeping still but we will next week Thank you so much for coming. I love it in this new building. I feel different. I feel uh, leisurely. And actually, I'm starting to really like it that uh, we have four weeks together, so I don't feel under any pressure finish everything. In a week, we'll finish this piece, and then Donald will come back for three weeks, and then I'll come back for three weeks. So Donald likes it better in bigger chunks, and... I guess I'll start to like it better in bigger chunks as well. May all beings everywhere be peaceful. Come to the end of suffering. Bring a friend next week.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.